0: Welcome to Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Creek, and I'm with two of my co hosts, uh, Maria Jose and Mario Sikora. How are y'all doing this lovely Friday afternoon? I was doing great until my disappointment over your lack of creativity about your,
1: <laughs> the adjectives you used to, to, to bring us into the episode. I haven't We're, had right? coffee today, so that's I'm, probably... You know, I'm yeah. expecting something interesting, my jovial jolly, you know, yeah. whatever you okay. want to do. And he needs a to self-confidence boost.
2: He, yeah. does, he needs a boost in his self-confidence. That's right. <laughs> I haven't had my ego stroke in yeah.
0: like 20 oh. minutes, man. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I, I swear I'll do better. Um, okay. But, uh, <laughs> it's a holiday weekend. What are you going to it's, do? Oh, yeah, For I you. Well, do you yeah, think yeah.
2: All, my, all our listeners are from the States? Probably nope. most, uh, but yeah. lots.
0: <laughs> so today we are talking about, we're beginning our conversation around subtypes. And you'll, you'll probably notice that there's a theme in all of our episodes where we like to really dig down and define words. And you may be like, why? We all understand. We have dictionaries. We have Google. Why are we doing this? Um, it seems a bit tiresome. But with any good model... Um... <laughs> Is that projection, Creed? Is, yeah. Are you projecting your issues onto, uh... <laughs> Our audience want more
1: for <laughs> always. <laughs> always. Let's, <laughs> let's throw away
2: all the definitions. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and stick with the depth. <laughs> yes.
1: Good.
0: So today we're going to dive into more definition. But any any good model, we need to make sure we're defining our terms so we all understand that we're talking about the same thing. It's um, it's
1: the Humpty Dumpty thing, right? Again, I'll. I'll oh reference. right, yeah, You're, of course, right, yeah, right. from <laughs> uh, from Alice in Wonderland. Right, she goes and. Humpty Dumpty's talking to her and, and uses a word. I forget the word he uses, but she says, I don't think that word means that. And his response is, when I use a word, it means whatever I want it to mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. and, and this is not good conversation, right? No. This is not a, a good communication, I Yeah, say.
2: but, you know, it seems it could be understood like he's just trying to make definitions up. But... In reality, we all do the same without saying it. Mm -hmm. We all understand whatever we are capable of or want to and think we're all seeing or understanding the same thing. And that's the tricky thing. If we don't define the terms, we're just assuming that what I understand, Mm -hmm. it's what the other person is trying to convey.
0: Well, and since coffee is on my mind, because I haven't had any yet, when someone says, oh, you like coffee, I'm like, yes, but what does that mean? Are you gonna go buy me some Starbucks? Yeah, don't mess with creat (laughs) coffee. But but that's that's a very important oh yeah, I'm really into coffee too. And it turns out they're just it's just like super dark roast and and through a a Keurig. And it's like, no, you're you're not into coffee.
2: Are you sure you're a four, Craig?
0: I, you know, I wonder sometimes. I'm too happy. Um. And,
1: and uh, since we're on this topic, I got to say that uh, in the past few months, I have switched to Folgers Black Silk, which is the best off-the-shelf coffee I have encountered by far. Really? I, say, I was stunned. I was in a restaurant, and the coffee was amazing. And I said to them, I said, yeah, you got to tell me what kind of coffee this is. And they said you'll never believe it, but it's Folgers. And I'm a convert. Okay, I, I, rebrand. There you okay. go. All
0: I'm right. like, yeah, we won't get into that. I have a whole spiel on that. But let's go back into subtypes. We've mentioned them a few different times, but let's let's jump into them. How do we define subtypes?
1: So so before we before we go there, and <laughs> we'll go there quickly, relatively quickly. <laughs> the reason this is so important is because when it comes to the subtypes when it comes to the instinctual biases in the enneagram world everybody thinks they're talking about the same thing and people get into arguments over no it's you know so and so is not this subtype they're that subtype and we there are situations where both people could be right depending on how they're defining the terminology right? So in order to have a conversation, before we get into debate over what subtype somebody is or what instinctual bias somebody is, we have to make sure that we understand what we mean by that term, right? And this is the thing about models, okay? You can have multiple models for the same thing, but any model needs to be internally consistent, meaning it It doesn't contradict itself and externally consistent, meaning that it describes that thing that you say it's describing, but there are different ways to do this. Okay. Now, again, to go back to our last conversation about popper and uh, falsification of ideas and, um, and you know, dear listener, if you haven't heard that one yet, please do go back and listen to it. I think it's our best episode yet, but the act of eliminating errors in a theory applies here as well, right? We have to take a look at what the terminology we're using and make sure that we're eliminating any inconsistencies, any errors and so forth, and ending up with an explanation that we think is the best for our use. So there, so what was your question?
0: (laughs) What are the subtypes?
1: What are the subtypes? Yeah. Maria Jose, you wanna say something here? No. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so um, the subtypes are the intersection of the two dimensions we use to describe the Enneagram. So we have the three instinctual biases preserving, navigating, and transmitting. And we have the nine strategies. I won't describe them all. But when but we. But type
1: four is striving to feel unique. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> um,
2: and. So the three instinctual biases are our set of values, what we focus on, what we prioritize, uh, prioritize. and the, three, the nine strategies are how we go about um, fulfilling those needs, those instinctual needs. Every one of us has one instinctual bias, that it's more dominant, that it's our zone of enthusiasm, as we call it, And each of us has one preferred strategy, the strategy that we use the most. It's that on their own, we can use both models. They're a typology on their own. Now, when we combine both things, we have one instinctual bias that it's the one we pay more attention to. And we have one strategy that it's our preferred strategy. That combination creates a subtype that it's kind of the minimum unit of this model of 27 subtypes of the Enneagram. We could say that it's um, nine subtypes of each three instinctual biases or three subtypes of each type or strategy. Which one do you prefer, Mario?
1: Well, it's um, because the convention of the Enneagram is nine, uh, we tend to officially say that there are three subtypes of nine types. But in practice, honestly, I think we both treat it as nine version of three fundamental types. Okay. So these really are independent variables. Okay. And like Maria Jose said, in our experience, it can be effective to. Uh, Teach them independently of each other. There are workshops that I do where I only talk about the three instinctual biases and not the nine types. Now, is that as robust as combining both of them? Well, of course not, right? Uh, By way of analogy, we can talk about how much somebody weighs. Okay. And that gives us basic information about somebody. So, by way of analogy, we can talk about how much somebody weighs. And that gives us some sense of that person. It gives us useful information. We could say, for example, that Maria Jose, wait, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, (laughs) That that, that Mario weighs 255 pounds. Okay. Well, that tells us something. Okay. Mario is probably a a big guy. Okay. Um, But if we start now adding in how tall Mario is, that gives us a deeper understanding. If he's five foot four and two hundred and fifty-five pounds, that says one yeah. thing. Um, if he's six foot two and two hundred and fifty-five pounds, that says something different. They both say he needs to go on a diet, but you know, that's besides the point. So <laughs> yeah. so and and likewise we could talk about how tall somebody is, and that gives us some picture. But if we just if we add both dimensions, we get more. Okay. Mm-hmm. So both the instinctual biases and the strategies can be useful on their own but adding both of them really adds some robustness to it.
2: I think that some people really enjoy the descriptions of the 27 subtypes, and we do try to stay away from defining that too detailed because it is it is a lot more useful to see the subtypes as this combination of these two dimensions. Yeah, It's easier to see what comes from the instinctual bias and what comes from the strategy instead of describing a set of traits that are supposed to be from that uh, subtype. And probably I'm getting ahead here. We're going to be um, talking about how our approach is different to others. But I think that by understanding the two dimensions and how they look when when they have certain combinations, it's the way to go.
1: Yeah. A couple of other illustrations, I guess, to help with the visual of this. When we portray this in a slide, we'll use a uh, a Tai Chi diagram, you know, the the, the yin and the yang. And you've got the, the strategy on one side and the instinctual bias on the other. And what we know about the Tai Chi is that, yeah, it has these two elements, but they're in this constant interplay, this constant swirling with each other right so you really don't know where yin starts and yang begins and it's the same way with this Um, another analogy is if you've ever been anywhere where a river meets the ocean okay like uh, i I know you've both been to, to lisbon for example right so there's that big river i forget the name of it that feeds into the ocean and there's that space where they come together and the color of the water is different, right? And, the, you know, the the um, the water's choppier in the mouth of the river than it is upriver and that sort of thing, right? So we can think of this as, you know, the ocean is the strategy. The river is the instinctual bias. And where they come together is what we call the subtype.
2: Yeah, the, the river is Tajo.
0: Thank you. How do you spell that?
2: T A J O.
0: So obviously, other than have you redone all all of the language in the enneagram, um, Mario? <laughs> other than that, <laughs> how uh, it
2: needs to be his language now. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Look, you can justify it and rationalize it as much as you want. <laughs> hey,
0: man. Well, when I use a word, it means exactly what I want it to <laughs> mean. <right? laughs> I mean, but we, yeah. Again, we all do it. We just, we just don't necessarily put it in, put it in stone as much. Flexible stone, in Mario's <laughs> case. But how, uh, how does the ATA approach differ from what's, uh, what is out there most commonly? Oh, in so many ways. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. Uh,
1: so there's a couple of, of, of key things here. Um, number one, to me, whenever I hear somebody use the word instinct, it feels like nails on a chalkboard, right? And, you know, I've written things in the past where I use that term because it's the term I used to use, right? So, you know, not to be too harsh on people who still use the terminology, but it's problematic because it gives the impression, and this is the way it's often taught that there are these three distinct forces at play, and those forces shape our behavior, okay? These three instincts, self-preservation instinct, a social instinct, and a sexual instinct, though some have changed that to -to one-to-one in order to be more, you know, um, politically correct, I guess. The problem is, is that that's an old sort of Freudian notion about instincts that's 100 years old, and it's not the way that these drives are talked about in science anymore, right? You won't hear anybody in the legitimate sciences or the legitimate academic world talking about instincts as if they're a thing, okay? A more modern term is evolutionary adaptation, They were just an adaptation, and there are many of these, right? There aren't just three. There are a whole bunch of them, and within what we call these instinctual domains, there are multiple adaptations that seem to be related to each other in some way and tend to co-express in people, meaning that Behaviors that we would put into what we call the preserving domain tend to display themselves or express themselves more in some people than they do in others. Now, those behaviors include things like, or those adaptations, craving fats and sweets, seeking security, seeking comfort, shelter, etc. All these things we think of as quote unquote self Okay, There's not one instinct that drives all of those behaviors okay now human nature is really 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 complicated
2: mara but just one just one thing before you move on i think that even not only is more really correct to use evolutionary adaptations but it gives a different meaning i think to understanding of the instinctual biases because when you talk about the instincts as people usually talk about and then if you come if you compare it to evolutionary adaptations which implies that there's a value in having those that there's something that worked so that those genes kind of were passed on from generation to generation so it's a good thing versus having an instinct that I need to tame, that I need to uh, kind of control. or uh, So it is very different. So it's not just being more correct, but it's yeah. how we think about these things.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and also it takes us to this idea of, you know, when people say, oh, I have to work on my self-preservation instinct, mm. right? Well, number one, there's no such things so you can't. Number two, if all you're working on is self-preservation, well, what do you mean by that, right? So what we can work on are behaviors related to these domains, right? But you can't say, I'm just going to work on one thing and expect it to affect all these things. So what we would say to somebody is if they came to us and said, well, I need to work on my self-preservation. What do you mean by that? Do you need to work on how you eat? Do you need to work on exercise? Do you need to work on creating a more comfortable nest? You know, what is the behavior that you're talking about? So we have to get a bit more granular in order to make this useful. Now, I was saying that human nature is really, really complicated and you can kind of follow this chain of, um, Uh, expression downward right so eating an orange is an expression of hunger it's an expression of um, seeking sweets etc there are things that affect our tendency to crave these things, right? So you can kind of follow, you know, the old story about, you know, know, what's the earth sit on? Well, it's turtles all the way down, right? Well, you can look at forces and functions and drives and uh, phenomena, biological phenomena, kind of all the way down to some real fundamental drives. Okay, For example, if you were to read the work of uh, Jack uh, Panksepp, uh, where he talks the archaeology of the mind, and he identifies these seven drives or impulses that drive a lot of our behaviors, you know, a play, impulse, and so forth. I'm forgetting the others off the top of my head. Well, you know, one could say, okay, they're closer to the root of what's driving things, and then as those express, they express in other ways, and as those things express, they express in other ways, et cetera, until we get to these adaptations. So uh, there's a whole chain of, you know, biology going on here. And I I recently saw somebody online posting that he thinks that the three so-called instincts are related to three of Panksepp's drives, okay? And that's why people show these instincts. Uh, that's a huge, huge leap, and you still got four left over, right? What, What do you do with those, okay? So this stuff's really, really complicated, and we have to think about at what level of expression of biological forces are we talking? Somebody might come along someday and say, well, deep, 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 deep down inside there are these three things that lead to all these other things, right? But I think it's a huge, huge leap to now. call them three instincts right and nobody does that anymore mm-hmm. okay so that's problem number one
2: not nobody outside of the enigm community
1: yeah which is kind of embarrassing right <laughs> you, you know i mean i hate to say it but yeah. it's kind of embarrassing that there's this little subculture using these hundred-year-old terms thinking they know more than other people
0: So there's, there's the instinct. And of course you can go back to our previous episodes where we talk a lot more about the instinctual biases and how they all interact, what they are, all those sort of things. If we step into more of the the subtype category, how, how does that um, differ from how other people approach it?
1: So the common view, and we can kind of trace this to Naranjo. The common view is that there are these three instincts that happen. And Noronho himself in character neurosis says, yeah, you know, you could quibble with thinking about it this way, but it's good enough for now. Okay. So, but the, the standard is there are these three instincts, which are some kind of, I've heard the term natural animal intelligence in us as if we need to put the word animal in there because, you know it's a little redundant we are animals but anyway that if we if they were left to express on their own they would do the right thing okay? hmm. but the vice or fixation depending on who you're talking to interferes with the natural expression of these things okay? and distorts it in some way or amplifies it in a negative way in other situations and so forth okay Okay, Uh, all right. Um, That's really, really specific to me. And like I said, it's problematic because we're assuming there are these three forces that are being interfered with. And we're assuming that they would, left to their own devices, do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything about human nature that comes into the world fully formed. great line from Lucretius where he says, you know, trees don't just pop from the ground and men don't just pop from the womb, right? Everything goes through a progression of growth and maturation and behaviors related to these instinctual adaptations need to as well. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And and what is right? I mean, the right thing. What are we talking about? So would you do something useful? Would you do something effective or... And probably if we go back again to thinking about evolutionary adaptations, we would do something that would serve a purpose at some point in some place, but maybe not in the current situation.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. The amount of times that a bird has built a nest in the wrong place. Yeah. Definitely using the preserving instinct, but that doesn't, it wasn't the right choice. Uh, Exactly right. And again,
1: I, I wouldn't say that's a preserving instinct. I would say it's a drive to build a nest right? Right, and, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, and this is the problem with these things is that they need to, like everything else, be managed. Okay? And it helps us to understand. Now, our view is not so much that the vice, you know, distorts or inhibits or amplifies or anything like that, the instinct, but the easiest way to explain it, And again, this is only an explanation, okay? And someday, I would love to have a deeper, better understanding of what's really happening here, but this is the best I have for now. The instinctual biases shape what's important to us and what we spend our time and energy on. It's what we want to devote our resources to, our resources being my attention, my energy, my money, whatever it is, okay? The strategy is how we go about achieving that. So Maria Jose and I, and you, are all navigators, okay? So we all devote our resources primarily to navigating, but we all do it in different ways, okay? Maria Jose does it by striving to feel perfect. You do it by striving to feel unique slash distinct. I do it by... yeah. You'll
2: have to find another way of
1: <laughs> expressing it because
2: now it's kind of standard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: to find yeah. another word. Yeah. We're going
1: to change all of our materials <laughs> to that just to irritate yeah. uh, <laughs> It was distinct when it was just me, but now yeah. Whereas I do it by striving to feel powerful. Yeah. Okay, and so again, this is why we often think of it as nine versions of three basic things right? We're all navigators, um, but we do it different ways. Mm-hmm. So so that's how we think about this compared to how others tend to think about it.
2: It's a side note here. I don't need to say it. It's amazing how every time we start thinking, talking about the instinctual biases, we have more and more things to say,
1: mm. just
2: endless. I was um, paying attention the other day to different models of leadership that people use and whenever and most, I mean, most times when they talk about three leadership aspects, it correlates to the three instinctual biases. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah for sure. And, you know, any organization, any group is just a reflection of the human condition. Yeah. Okay. The word corporation comes from the root of the word for body. Right. And and. In U.S. law, a corporation is considered an individual, okay, legally, and so you're going to see the same patterns in groups of people that you see in uh, in, in in individuals. So, uh, and Maria Jose and I've seen this over and over again of organizations, like she said tend to form around the same fundamental things and much more the instinctual biases than the strategies. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, for sure. All right. So there's one other thing I want to talk about that, um, is kind of part of a standard that we see differently. Okay. And this, is the idea of a, um, a counter type, the, common perspective, or at least in the Naranjo tradition, is that within each group of subtypes, of the nine types, there is one that's the counter-type, meaning that it goes against the vice or fixation. And in each grouping, that's different. In some, it's the self-pres and others, it's the, you know, the social, whatever. We don't see it that way for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's just a bit too convenient, right? I mean, it's like, okay, why would that happen? That raises, that's an explanation that raises a whole lot of questions for me. Okay. It just seems too convenient. And one of the ways I heard this explained by somebody who advocates this perspective is, well, we all know there's a counterphobic six. So why wouldn't there be a counterphobic, counterversion of all the other counterphobic six is kind of a tricky term because in our view you take these two elements the instinctual bias and the strategy and sometimes they're really similar okay they have kind of a similar energy a similar focus like the preserving five for example okay both sides of the yin and yang are really similar so or the beca- transmitting three or the transmitting three, or the transmitting seven, transmitting eight, right? It becomes kind of the, the stereotype of the type. But other times you have these two forces that are really different from each other. Transmitting five, right? Transmitting, but striving to feel detached. Transmitting nine. Preserving right? three. Preserving three. Absolutely. Okay. So you get these things that have this tension, with each other and they don't look like the stereotype but it's the natural expression of these two forces and when you understand these two forces independently you understand what it's going to look like when they come together
2: yeah and from the outside but all, and also from the inside because it's you understand how people feel What's their experience? So what are these inner forces fighting with each other, like with the transmitting nine? There's a part of them that wants to just go on the stage and do things and be more assertive. There's a part of me that a part of them that wants to withdraw, run away.
1: The uh, the navigating eight like me is one of the supposed counter types as well. Right? Now, if that was the case and I was supposed to go against the fixation of vengeance or the uh, or or the vice of lust I'm sorry now you can convolute some explanation of that but
0: it just ain't it's not going to fly what would be a is what would be a better way of like what better terminology for that sort of um, difference in yeah, energies so,
1: so it's it, So we always want to operate from first principles, okay? First principles are, if we continue with me a navigating eight, somebody who's navigating, right? Who wants to understand group dynamics and, you know, function within them, and somebody who's striving to feel powerful. Okay, you bring these two things together. What's the logical outcome going to be? Somebody who seeks power in groups, okay? But, they tend to have a bit more political savvy and astuteness because of this navigating instinctual bias than, say, a transmitting eight might for whom the navigating domain is the zone of indifference. So they're going to be this sort of bull in a china shop force of nature because they just don't have this same inhibition that a navigating ape will. Okay, So... The, the transmitting eight is Sonny Corleone, right? The, the navigating eight is Vito Corleone. The okay? preserving eight is Michael Corleone, okay? So so these two things function, and no disrespect to my transmitting eight friends, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think of you all as Sonny. Uh, it didn't work out so well for him, <laughs> but, um, so, uh, uh, but it's just a, a way to capture the energy at play. And again, it's the logical outcome of these two forces interacting with each other.
0: Yeah. So in some ways I'm hearing that what countertype is trying to name is is the the tension, the tension of the energies. It, but if it becomes just the countertype, then we're we're still in stereotypical land. We're still just talking about stereotypes and and why can't the navigating ape be the stereotype? It's just we've we've chosen the transmitting eight to be the stereotype. Is that Am I, I'm yeah. tra- Are you tracking here? Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I think uh, again, the stereotype is the one, it's not quite arbitrary. It's the one in which the two forces most reinforce and amplify each other. Okay. Okay. So, um, so because that makes the two things more obvious. Okay. Transmitting eights are really easy to spot.
2: Or preserving it, sixes.
1: Or preserving sixes. Okay. For sure navigating nines are kind of the stereotype of the nine for uh to give another example uh, pre- navigating fours or not right there are a lot of people out there who are navigating fours who everybody else will insist is a nine or something because the navigating aspect brings to it this sort of calming down right this uh, sort of a A a more sensitive radar to group dynamics, and a more sensitive, more sensitivity to how much they show, and how much they express. So the fourness is a little bit more muted, in the navigating four. How dare you! What's that? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> well, I, you know, hey, look, I, you know, it's, I see that as a good thing, know, uh, no, I understand. You know, yeah. whereas with the transmitting four, it's the, you know, uh, all right, this is a four, right? It's operatic mm-hmm. and dramatic mm-hmm. and Nicolas Cage-like, right? Mm-hmm. So now you said, well, maybe what the the countertype is trying to say is blank. Mm-hmm. Well, whenever you have to say what I'm trying to say by this that's a sign that you need to find a better way to say it. Mm -hmm. okay? Because it's not getting it quite right. And again, there might be a point where we say, you know what, I thought of a better way to say this. But for me, just coming out and saying, look, you have these two forces, the interplay of them creates something different and you never really know what it's going to look like to Maria Jose's earlier point about why we don't get into real detailed descriptions, because it can look different. It can play itself out in different ways in different circumstances.
2: And, you know, to me, um, the word countertype is less useful as well. I think that if you have a model that it's meant to help you see ourselves and other more clearly, and you think about someone or yourself as a countertype, you might think that you're not so much as that type. You're less like that. And you know, in some ways it's, as you said, maybe more muted, or if you think about a transmitting nine, for example, it's not like a fully a full expression of the transmitting, nor the full expression of the nine. It's, but it doesn't show you the nuances of like how the nine expresses and how the transmitting expresses in the transmitting nine. Because you're thinking of like not a nine, less of a nine but not the details of how that manifests.
1: For me, signals that there's a high probability that somebody's mistyped is when they say, well, that's because I'm the countertype," Or they say, well, that's because I've done a lot of work on myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know. For me, right away, I'm thinking, all right, we, we've okay. got a mistyping here. Yeah.
2: So. Well, that's my wing. Oh, yeah, my right. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Well, let's we'll we'll save that for a few moments. All right. So, again, the reason why understanding this is really really important again is to help us get better at typing ourselves and other people, right? Really understanding what's happening, and if we sit back, you, you know, I, I can look at. How does my navigating instinctual bias intersect with my need to start to feel powerful in way after way after way after way, right? I can continually explore that.
2: You know, I, I think that it is important to type people, including ourselves, correctly. But it's even more important if we want to do something with it. Because if the whole thing is about typing... You know, maybe it's there's no danger if doing it incorrectly. If it gives you some feel-good description of who you think you are. But if you want it to be useful, you want a better explanation. You want a better definition. And I think that's to me, that's why it's it's important.
1: I'll also point out that if you ever hear anybody saying that well, that fundamental thing associated with a particular type is not important to me because I'm the counter type. Again, mm-hmm. you've got somebody you know, who's mistyped, right? If, if an eight comes to you and says, well, you know, I don't really care that much about power because I'm a quote-unquote social subtype, no, <laughs> no. <right? laughs> you care differently. I, yeah, if you yeah. come to me and say, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not really the workaholic, you know, driven kind of type three because I'm the counter type. I get that right. You. You're, you're, you're mistyped, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just, right? So it's, it's just confusing to people and
0: confuses people over and over again. So when it comes to the, the complicating factors of type, why do you all choose to avoid talking about wings or tri types or all the other terms that are being made up these days.
1: Yeah. Well, look at at the way you phrase that, all the other complicating elements, Mm. right? There's the great Einstein quote that every explanation be as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? So we can argue about what is simple enough. We are dedicated... Occamites, right, meaning that uh, you think of (laughs) the big
2: word of the episode, (laughs) (laughs) even if you just made it up.
1: (laughs) As we've discussed before, I'm sure William of Occam was the medieval theologian and philosopher most famous for Occam's razor, which is often misinterpreted as the simplest explanation is usually the right one. But what he actually meant was, don't add unnecessary variables. If you can explain something in two steps, don't add a third. Okay, So that's kind of, you know, I I am very much a fanatic about that. Okay, so if we can explain something in two, don't add a third. For me, properly understood, the instinctual biases and the strategies explain everything we need to know about... eh, Every, everything that's, yeah, I'll say the most important things about the type. And some of the other ideas seem to me to be either, I'm just going to come out and say this, errors injected into the system or unnecessarily redundancies. Okay, let's start with try type Okay, I get it. I don't know why it would be the case that you would have a different quote-unquote type in each center. <sighs> okay, but the thing that troubles me most is that there are 27 tri-type archetypes, and when I hear the descriptions of them, they just sound like the 27 subtypes to me, okay? Okay. So if you're taking two ways of, you know, expressing the same thing, dump one of them, dump the most complicated one, right? Which to me would be tri-types. Okay. So I, if it, if it works for you in some way, okay, great. Okay. I know some people who think it's awesome. They use it in organizations, et cetera. Okay, great. For me, it just doesn't, doesn't do any good. Now the wing thing early on, In my Enneagram education, one of the things I noticed that people tended to argue about was what wing they were, what wing somebody else was, and there always seemed to be disagreement. You're an eight with a nine wing. No, you're an eight with a seven wing. You know, back and forth and back and forth. Okay, this happens. But when I started using it in organizations, I would find the same thing and it would seem like an unnecessary distraction to people. Now, it did explain differences, but then I started to notice something as I started to understand the instinctual biases better. is that there seemed to be a correlation between somebody's subtype and the wing description that they tended to identify with or be identified with. For example, every transmitting eight that I would encounter would fit the description of an eight with a seven wing. Every transmitting seven I met would fit the description of a seven with an eight wing, et cetera. So I started to realize, okay, wait a minute. There's something weird going on here. At the same time, I would notice that people would say, oh, yeah, I'm clearly this wing or I'm clearly that wing, but, you know, and somebody else would say, yeah, I don't think either of them really fit me that well. And then the theory became, well, you know, some people have both wings equally or some people don't really have a wing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, again, problem with the theory, what's really happening here. Now, I just started to assume that there was, you know, what people were really talking about were the subtypes in kind of a convoluted way unnecessarily complicated way and then I started finding out about the history of the idea because I noticed for example that Claudio Naranjo where all this stuff kind of came from never talked about wings and I started reading Sandra Maitrey's work and listening to her interviews with her where she said yeah this idea that you're a four with a five wing or a four with a three wing was an add-on by people who weren't exposed to the idea of the subtypes early on. And they did know that Echazo said something or other about wings, okay? He was talking about something completely different. And so they started coming up with this idea that you're either a four with a five wing or a four with a three wing. So it's an attempt to explain something. And the analogy I always think of, when we talk about this, there's the old story, parable, of cutting the ends off the pot roast, okay? So this young woman is going to cook her first pot roast. And so she does what her mother taught her to do. She puts the pot roast into the pan and cuts the ends off of it and cooks them separately. And she says, Mom, why do we do this? And she says, I don't know. It's what my mother taught me to do. So she goes to the grandmother. Why do we do this? I don't know. It's because my my mother taught me to do. Okay. They go to the great-grandmother. Why do you do this? I do it because, you know, when I was your age, we had really tiny stoves and tiny pots to put them in. So we had to cut the pot roast to size. Okay. So this was an explanation that, you know, was outdated, quite frankly. Right? It wasn't necessary anymore now that we had bigger ovens. The same way now that we really understand the instinctual biases and the subtypes, the wings are just a confusion to me.
2: Yeah, and I, I feel like I have said these in different platforms a hundred times. But it's not only a bad definition but or unnecessary, but it's just not actionable. So when I define my myself or other people using the preferred strategy and the instinctual bias i know that i need to change the narratives around my preferred strategy i'm striving to feel perfect and that sometimes helps me and sometimes doesn't and i need to change that narrative what i think it will help me feel more perfect when i think about my preferred my instinctual bias and i think about i'm navigating or my profile where navigating is first and it's my zone of enthusiasm. I have transmitting as my zone of inner conflict and preserving as the zone of indifference. I know that because I have that profile, I get in trouble in certain ways and I need to develop other things. I would have no idea what to do about my wing. So if I'm a one with a two wing, so what? How do I address the problems I have or the obstacles I face?
1: I don't know. I do want to make the point here that obviously there's a whole lot of people in the Enneagram world who disagree with us. Surprise, surprise. And people that I have respect for disagree with us. And people that I have respect for think, you know, oh, I find the wings very helpful, et cetera, et cetera. I find the tri-types helpful. Fewer of those, quite frankly, than wings but okay again for us we're looking to make the model as robust and accurate and clear as we can so the wings just don't meet our criteria for the uh usefulness to use marie jose's idea added to balance the degree of complexity that they bring
0: i i think what we can't what we can say what we can talk about with wings just quickly as we're finishing up here is that the way they do play into the system is that it's the tension, the polarities of the numbers on either side that create, um, like 4-4, right? Striving to feel outstanding and striving to feel detached. How best to do that is striving to feel unique um, and separating yourself from people by being outstandingly detached.
1: Yes, so that is the original Itchazo view, but it was about the vices rather than the strategies. okay? So um, you know, he would say for the four, it was envy is kind of, and and he was using this as an analogy. He wasn't using it as a causal mechanism. Okay. He was saying that to understand what it's like to be a four, what this envy is like, you take this stinginess of the five, and the deception or vanity of the three and you fold those in like wings and that creates the envy this aspiration of wanting what you have because it will make me feel better um so that's what he was talking about but the people who started talking about the wings in the united states early on didn't know this teaching okay and and again you can you can you know do google on sandra Maitre or read her book and she talks about this and she was one of the students who was there in in um, naranjo's original teaching
2: i'll take the role of the transmitter that we don't have in the room and i'll say that we have descriptions of the 27 subtypes in our book instinctual leadership working with the 27 subtypes of the enneagram we (laughs) try to avoid or stay away from describing um, the 27 subtypes times in too much detail. But we do, however, have descriptions of how the interplay of the strategy and the instinctual bias manifests in each of these 27 combinations and how we work with the different profiles, the different leadership styles they have and all of that in this instinctual leadership book that you can find on Amazon.
1: Yeah, and and when we say that the descriptions are short, I mean, there are a couple of pages, right? So it's not like it's, you know, two sentences or something. So, um, so there are good descriptions in there. Yes. Thank you for transmitting there, Marie Jose. All
0: right. So well, yeah, tune in next week. Uh, we're going to start diving into each of the subtypes. Thank you all for listening. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next week thanks for listening to the awareness to action enneagram podcast if you're interested in more information or talking to mario mj or myself feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awareness to all episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awareness slash podcast